0: Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 10 are the subject of my uh, of our reading and my preaching. <clears throat> this is a word of God holy, inerrant, the infallible Word of God, true, without error, God having spoken through his prophets, through his through his apostles, through uh, through his ministers, God breathing out the word of God, as Paul tells Timothy. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Repentance. And he said, a man had two, pardon me, I skipped away, uh, verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loves one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we give thanks to you for your word. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon it. Give us eyes to hear, to see, and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You know, the Bible is full of imagery of sheep in application to, in direct uh, correlation to Christians and uh, it's extraordinary because sheep are rather foolish animals. Uh, if you watch sheep for very long, I'm sure you would say exactly what my dear friend uh, uh, Arnold says when he sees tomfoolery in the churches. Uh, foolishness. Um, sheep are like that. Sheep. Uh, if you go searching on YouTube, you'll find quite a few sheep uh, memes and sheep uh, uh, short stories and uh, brief movies. Sheep with their heads in a hole in the ground, with two feet sticking out of the rear, flailing, unable to get themselves out of the hole. Sheep that will go anywhere and into anything because they lack a sense of direction. They lack a sense of what is secure. They think themselves, well, they're frankly afraid at just about everything. And they run immediately. That's their instinct. And they don't know how to come back. They don't know how to find their way back. But that's you and me as Christians. We're sheep. And in so many different ways, we are sheep. And I'm so thankful that we are sheep because we're we are told in Scripture that there is one great shepherd. And the great shepherd knows his sheep. This passage is about the love of our great shepherd for his sheep. That means you and me. In our immediate context in chapter 14 verse 13 the Lord Jesus has been ministering there is a dinner and he tells this the person who has brought to effect the dinner he says look when you give a reception invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed the poor the crippled the lame the blind no one no one invites such persons to to a party no one makes a party out of such persons. You invite the, the beautiful, the, the restless, the young, the, the glorious, the, the attractive, the, the fun, the zippy, the entertaining. You, you, you attract those who will attract other people based upon external qualities. That's what you do. But Jesus says, no, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And here in this chapter, we see precisely the Lord Jesus doing that very thing. We see also in our immediate context in the dinner he is, he is railing against those who had come to the dinner, seeking honor and sitting in places of honor and being need, and in need of being moved down because in fact they 've chosen a place of higher, of honor a little higher than their typical station and that 's typically what we do isn 't it? We, we always we all think that we are just a, a touch more attractive than we really are. We think that our hair is just a, a little touch better than it really is. We believe we deserve just, just a little bit higher than what we actually do deserve. We, we overestimate, in other words, before I get in tr- trouble. We overestimate ourselves. We do. We overestimate ourselves. I, I overestimate myself. How's that? And we, and we underestimate what we think we deserve. And so what we see here is Jesus telling those who would claim an honor for themselves, sit in a lower position and be lifted up rather than sitting in a higher position beyond you uh, and thus being subject to being moved down. Well, there are extraordinary statements at the close of chapter 14 as well that have an immediate bearing on our context as well. Jesus has said, look, you, you need to consider <clears throat> who is and who can be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the one who is left behind the relationships and, or, or, or does not overestimate the importance of. And Jesus is greater than and more important than all of those earthly relationships of husband, wife, child, mother, father. And that none can be a disciple of Jesus who in fact are unwilling to leave behind or or make less of what they own and what they have and of their possessions. So it's precisely in that immediate context we, we find chapter 15 comes and Jesus is drawing large crowds of that kind of person. He's not drawing people who have said, no, I I am not willing to leave behind the resources that I have and give up all I have and follow Jesus. No, I'm not willing to take up my cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. No, my relationships to, to, to the people in my life and whom I love are far more important to me... Than following Jesus, and Jesus has just gotten done saying, "You cannot be my disciple." And so, those are not the kind of people that we see here in this chapter, or at least those are the people on the outside looking in who are grumbling and complaining. But the ones who are drawing near to Jesus are those like Levi, who who becomes Matthew, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What did he do when he came to Christ? Christ was willing to teach him to sit and eat with him. He threw a great reception. Who did he invite? The great and the most powerful of, of his society? No. He invited his fellow tax collectors to come. Fellow sinners. And they came. And he said, Jesus is speaking to me, and he will speak to you. You see, no one in Jewish society would speak to him. Jesus is drawing these individuals, and society hated tax collectors. Notice they're listed first. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners, they don't just have the distinction of being sinners. They are worse than sinners. You see, what happens with the tax collectors are, is that they would, they would uh, drop a contract with the Roman Empire, give a bid for a particular lucrative taxing station on a road, in a city, at a gate, and they would be responsible to raise a certain quota of taxes. But they were also allowed the freedom to uh, to extract greater taxes based upon their own manipulation and extortion, frankly. So that's what they did. And so once you'd paid your obligation to the Roman Empire, the tax collector would say, I noticed that you've added on to the back of your home. <laughs> what a lovely addition to your dwelling. There is, in fact, a, a tax for such an enterprise. Apologetically, I must state it, but I'm, I'm so sorry you have my sympathies. But oh, you've never heard of this tax before? Well, it's a new one, and you have to pay it, or in fact, the Roman, the Roman, uh, the the Roman authorities will and be sent to your door. And that's how it was done. And so tax collectors serving the Roman Empire would extract more than what they had a right to. And, and, and everyone hated them. And if, if we could compare them in any way to anything contemporary, we would say an abusive and extortative IRS agent. That's who they are. I don't know about you, but I really don't want to have lunch with, a, with an IRS agent in my home. They'll take a look. They'll look around and say, hmm. Maybe we should take a second look at your your taxes. I'd be deathly afraid of that. When I was audited this last year, I was thankful I was on the phone and not in person. Not Not that I have anything really ultimately to hide. But the fact is that that's what type of tax collector This would be and added to the tax collectors who are sitting and eating with Jesus are sinners. They're they're coming near him to listen to him. One didn't go near sinners. One actually the the idea of social distancing. We thought that that started about two, two and a quarter years ago. It didn't. It started way back when you socially distanced on the basis of I am holy and that individual is a sinner. I can't go anywhere near him or her. We're talking about people who are harlots. We're talking about people who are money-changing, money-grubbing, money-loving sort of sinners who would do anything for money. We're talking about liars and thieves and cheats. We're talking about wicked men and wicked women who don't carry themselves well, who take advantage of a neighbor, who will in, an, in, in any moment take advantage of any who are weak and lesser than themselves. Sinners, the most sinful irreligious pagan in its fullest sense wicked and here Jesus is surrounded by them shouldn't that immediately make us admire our savior what a glorious savior he's not too, he's not so he's not so high and lifted up although he is he's not so high and exalted that he will not come and embrace sinners nor give himself body and blood for them. Well, they're drawn by the master's teaching, and his teaching is extraordinary, not the least of which is, first and foremost, at the very least, that he is willing to speak with them, sit with them, eat with them. It's extraordinary. No one else in society would. They had been cut off from being ever even within the hearing of the word of God. They were cut off out of the religious system that they were a part of. And so Jesus, in the midst of this setting, hears the Pharisees and the scribes, knowing what is in their heart, as Lucas said in previous places, began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I'll tell you, not on the same basis of sin or anything else, but my dearest and best and closest and most loyal friend was not a seminary student back at least back when I was in seminary, was not a fellow seminary student. It wasn't at all. It wasn't someone from the church that I was serving. It wasn't my mentor in pastoral ministry. It was another man who was a believer, a Pentecostal, who spoke in tongues, who didn't have a good tooth in his head, who had 17 dogs, who lived in a trailer out in the woods, who is the most beautiful, wonderful person I've ever known. At at the very least, I think all of you are quite beautiful and wonderful too. But at least at that stage in my life, (laughs) that was what I thought of that man. He was the most wonderful friend in times of need. And God has given me many friends over the course of my life. But in those five years, in a lonely time in pastoral ministry, working my way through seminary, up to my neck in studies, as well as working full-time and new babies, and it was an overwhelming time. And there there were times of deep and great affliction and of sadness and of sorrow. But Billy Waltman was my best friend in that day. And what was lovely about him was that he loved the Lord. Anyone else would look on the outside and say, Who is this guy? In fact, I did it first. I hired him to put in some carpets for me in a house that I was renting, and I didn't think much of him. I didn't like him at first. I'll, I'll be, I, I, I've told Billy this. I've, I've, I've been honest with him, and I, I told him, you know, Bill, I didn't like you at first, and you know, I didn't like how you were giving me directions about doing what I was doing while I was working on the house with you. And, and he said, well, that, that's all right, partner. In his gravelly voice, he said, I didn't much like you either. And I loved him for his honesty, and we had a lot of fun together. And We worked for many years together. But what was most extraordinary about him was his love of Jesus, his willingness to pray for me, his faithfulness. I loved that man, and I love how he loved Jesus. You see, Billy was, in some ways, because of his circumstances, very much like what the world casts out. The world casts out and we write off people, don't we, on the basis of appearance? We take one look at people and we either write them off or we embrace them because of a perceived sense that they can in, in some way make us look good or that they like what we like and thus we'll feel good being around them because we like similar things. We have shared interests. Or we reject a person based upon any one of a number of criteria. And that's what the Pharisees have done. They have... They have lost a sense of grace. As they looked at these sinners and tax collectors, they did not look at them with the potential that God could be gracious to them. They looked at them as wicked sinners, unlike themselves. They also forgot that they themselves were exalted in their own position because of grace as well. So they should have humbly recognized We are nothing apart from the grace of God. And they should have looked at their fellow man and said, they are something in light of God's grace. If God is willing to be gracious to them, he can exalt them and lift them up and save them. So for the Christian who has experienced grace, there is no rejection of any person. And there is never the self-defeating idea that, well... I guess they're just going to be a pagan to the end of their days and God can never save them. No, we believe in the grace of God. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to save souls. That's why we don't stop praying and we don't grow weary in doing good. Well, these individuals are drawn by the Master's teaching. Note note that. They're coming near Him to listen to Him. He's teaching them and they're listening to Him. Don't underestimate that There are men and women in this world who long desperately to hear something of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of the fact that there are many at various moments in the course of their lives who will listen to you. Who will hear you. Who at just the right prompting of the Holy Spirit, despite the bumbling nature of what we do as we share the gospel and the imperfection of our own speech. God, the Holy Spirit, makes individuals prepared and ready to hear the gospel. So don't stop, dear friends. The Lord is at work in this world and the Lord is the one who makes ready. The Lord is the one who draws those individuals, those sinners in this world to listen to him. So Jesus detects the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's referenced in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 11, and chapter 11, verse 19. Multiple places throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees are angry with Jesus, and they hate the fact that he he meets with sinners. And he teaches the needy. And Jesus knows this. And so, in light of this, he will share three parables in this chapter, and they are extraordinary. The parable of the prodigal son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep. And the first, our intention this week is to cover the first of those two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Now, parables, parable is an interesting word. It's an interesting uh, literary mechanism. It's simply this: a story using very common elements of everyday life to illustrate a spiritual principle. And so here is a provision of pictures in story in order to present the hearer with a heard and seen sense of the truth. Oh, now I understand what the kingdom of God is like. Now I understand what the Lord Jesus is saying here. It's so helpful when we are given such pictures. What a wonderful Savior is willing to speak to us in baby talk. Because I need to hear in baby talk. Sometimes that's all I understand. What accommodations our God makes to us in his all of his glorious perfections where he doesn't simply say, listen to me and it's your problem to discern what I'm saying, but rather who speaks down into our difficulty and understanding and says, look, I'm going to explain this to you in a story. These parables, all three of them display the rejoicing of God and of all heaven over the redemption of the lost. And we'll see that first in these two. So first, the lost sheep. First, the lost sheep. It's a well-known story from the Master. There is a sheep, and this one sheep out of a 100 is lost. And the question is, what does all this mean, this story about sheep and about uh, sheep herding? And none none of us have really sheep herded. Well, maybe you have four cats at home, and what happens if you lose one of those cats? Do you simply say, I have 75% of my pets. That's enough for me. Or you have two cats, and one of them walks out, and magic the magic cat somehow finds its way out into the outdoors, and off it goes. What do you say? Well, I don't need that cat. I've still got one. No, you go out into the highways and the byways, and you find that cat, because you love that cat. You'd do the same if you had uh, three dogs at home. And, of course, if one of those dogs took off, you'd say... Where did Buster go? I, I, yes, I have two dogs, but I love my third dog as well. I love them all equally. So you put the two dogs in the house, and off you go to find the third dog. Well, what about children? You have six children. What if one of them wanders off and falls into a well? What do you say? Well, I still have five, and that's quite a number. I, I, it's enough for me. No, you leave the five in a state of security, and you go off, and you find six, the sixth. And you're, you're you're thrilled when you find that sixth child. It's not, it's not that you, well, I, 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 how many do I need? It's not that at all. Rather, here is a farmer. It is a means of his own living, but he loves his flock. He knows all hundred of his sheep. And that one sheep that is missing, he immediately realizes which one it is. Do you know shepherds do know their flocks well? to such an extent that they know the individuals that are coming through the shoots in today's modern farming? Well, Jesus asks a kind of a rhetorical question. And I will say that this passage is not about guardian angels that are assigned to individual children. That That is often what this passage is used to to typify but that that's not at all what this passage is about it's not about guardian angels and little sheep that fall off cliffs and little angels that go and rescue them it's not that at all rather the shepherd is jesus and it is always jesus what man among you he says the implication is every single one of you would do this if you had 99 sheep you would go off and find the one that is missing if you had a hundred thousand and and ninety nine, you would you would leave the hundred thousand and ninety eight to go and find the 100,099. That's just what you do. That's farming life. Sheep are prone to being lost. There's no instinct to return home. A shepherd on a mountain has lost one sheep, and he's got a hundred of them. Well, on 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 one scale, if if, in fact, the shepherd allows that sheep to continue to wander off and does not go and find that sheep, he allows that sheep to be eaten and consumed by wolves, lions, bears, all of which were in, 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 in the, that, those locations in Israel uh, during Bible times. What that bear sh- or, or lion or, or wolf will do is then it will get a taste for sheep and it will come after the other ninety-nine. It's very, very foolish to leave a sheep that has been taken or cattle, even in our present day, out on the range to leave it. Rather, you need to dispose of it quickly so that the animals that have killed it cannot benefit from it and thus develop a taste for the meat that you, in fact, are growing, nurturing, providing for. But more than this, one little animal may in fact be in an agrarian society the difference between whether or not your family has meat to eat or it doesn't. You can't kill the whole flock. You can only kill certain numbers of the flock so as to continue to keep that flock growing year after year to provide income. You can't just, in dwindling numbers, continue to kill off your sheep. Every life of a precious sheep is worthwhile. And so here is this farmer. He has He has a hundred sheep and he leaves the 99 after they are put out into appropriate and safe pasture and he pursues the one that is lost. Each is valuable, but the collective whole, though vital, is not more vital than the individual or any individual that is lost. So he looks and finds the sheep. He doesn't fade in his pursuit until the sheep is found. He looks until the sheep is then in his arms and he takes that sheep and he puts that sheep on his shoulders. It's an extraordinary sheep or or it's an extraordinary pursuit. And it puts us to shame, I think, in some ways, as those who serve as under shepherds of Christ, as those who serve as servants of Christ, when we are commanded by Christ to go out into the world to make disciples for Christ, to make him known when we are seeking disciples, when we are seeking the lost. And indeed, it is the obligation of Christian people to seek to seek those who are lost to winsomely and graciously, kindly, and with love to share the gospel with our loved ones, to look for other opportunities to share the gospel with with, with our neighbors, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have as we are in the bank or in the convenience store or getting gas and someone has a question for us or doesn't have a question, or maybe they have a bumper sticker on their car that causes you to to, to have an opening for the gospel right then and there. Or maybe you're with a co-worker and they're talking with you over lunch and telling you, I've just gotten through the holidays. I hate the holidays. It's such a lonely time for me. My life is, I just don't have much of a life. God forbid we should never say, well, let me tell you about how to have life and how to have life abundantly. And here is our Savior, our great shepherd, who is an example to us. And what does he do? He goes, to every, he goes to every extreme to find that sheep that is lost. The language is such that the Savior, the shepherd, does not cease from going after that sheep until that sheep is found. So you imagine at the end of a day of farming and of bringing those sheep into another place to get water. You bring them back into a pasture land where they're safe overnight And what do you do? You spend the whole night watching over them. You live with those sheep. You smell like the sheep. You look like the sheep. But at night, when you bring the sheep in, at the end of the day, you're exhausted. You're wiped out. You're tired. And then you number them and you realize, oh, I left one behind. Ajax the sheep is still lost. He must have wandered off somewhere along the way. I've got to go find him. Maybe he's fallen in a pit. Maybe his head is stuck in a hole and he doesn't know where to go. And so he goes out and he goes all the way back. Think about how weary and enterprise that is. Think about how tired he is. But think about the love that drives his zeal to find that sheep. Nothing is too much for that sheep. Nothing is too much to go and find that sheep. Some of us know what the love of Jesus Christ looks like because no matter how ungodly a lifestyle we were immersed in, Jesus Christ the Great Shepherd found us, didn't he? Amen. No matter how lost we were, the Lord Jesus Christ went to every length to find you. He went to the extremes and He was unwilling to to stop and say, I'm too tired to go any further. He didn't stop and say, this is too difficult. That sheep is far too wayward. And He didn't say... I don't like the looks of that sheep. I'd rather live with the wealthy and the famous and and the the successful, the happy, the good-looking. He didn't say that. Rather, he pursued you as the hound of heaven. He found you, and he wrapped his arms around you, and he made you his own. That's the incredible love of the Savior. But there's something else that's extraordinarily incredible, Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you in the same way, and he says the same in verse 10. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I'll get back to the joy, but let me let me there, there's strong emphasis on the idea that there is joy over the sinner who repents. But but let me explain something here is one provocative statement in verse seven the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is not saying with the with the with with the audience that's listening to him and observing him and frankly in verse 1 grumbling. Jesus is not saying you don't really have any need of me. Jesus is not saying there are any persons on the entire face of the earth who are so righteous that they are in need, not in need of a savior. He's not saying that. But he's saying that there are many who consider themselves to be so self-righteous that they will never see their need of Jesus Christ. They believe themselves to be so good that they will never approach the Lord Jesus and say, Oh, Jesus, I am, I am a wretched sinner. Help me and save my soul. You will never come to Christ until you are first convinced that you are a sinner and you need to repent And that there is only forgiveness with God. You can never come to Christ until you are first convinced of your great need. You will never, ever, ever come to Jesus. And heaven will never rejoice over you. And you will never experience salvation. You will never have the promise of eternal life. Until you repent. Over your sins. And repentance is the idea that you and I, men and women, boys and girls, come to a conviction over our sins. We come to a conviction over two things. Three things, really. One, that we were born in original sin. That when Adam sinned, we too sinned. And that in him, we sinned. And his sins count as a penalty against ourselves. So that even if we never sin in the course of our life, which is an impossibility, we are guilty before a a, a righteous and holy God. And the curse is upon our heads. And we are lost and damned apart from His grace. We become become convicted of a second thing. That we have not done what the Lord has commanded. That of all the things which God has commanded in His Word, to love as He loves, to walk as Christ walks, to obey the laws of Christ, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have not done those things perfectly. Thirdly, of all that God has commanded that we should not do, we've done many of them. The person that recognizes those things and boldly says, yes, yes, I have sinned against God. I am a sinner. And John tells us that if you say that that's not true, you're a liar. And so if you've detected your need of Christ... And you repent of your sins and you turn to Christ to be saved. You will be saved. There is there are a couple of extraordinary positions or or words here, even in Luke's gospel in chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. What Jesus is referencing with regard to those persons who don't need to repent are those who think they don't need to repent. Those who believe that they are righteous before God. Uh, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. It's extraordinary, I think, when Scripture points out to exactly what their problem is. They didn't love Christ because they loved money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The love of money. He also says something, uh, Luke also records for us in chapter 18, verse 9. And also he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. You see, that's the spirit of the 99 who think that they are in fact righteous. And we are told in this passage that all heaven rejoices not over them who are self-righteous but over the one who is convicted over his or her sin and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Unspeakable joy. That's what's in view here. There would be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And verse 10, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When one sinner repents, there is joy in heaven in the very presence of God the Father. The cherubim and the the fantastic beasts with faces of eagles and of man and of bears and of lions, these extraordinary beings who move without movement and minister and do exactly what God, our awesome God says in any given moment. They are the individuals who are rejoicing Oh, joy! Because someone has come to faith in Jesus Christ. God be praised! Jesus Christ be praised! Eternal Son of God, we rejoice in You! That's what heaven does over a sinner who is saved. It's extraordinary. Over one who recognizes his or her need of Jesus, even if for that individual is a child. The all heaven rejoices... The religious of the world are busy self-justifying themselves before God and their self-perceived goodness. But all heaven rejoices over the salvation of a sinner. Shouldn't we long to see all heaven rejoicing at the salvation of men and women with whom we come in contact with? Shouldn't we be praying and pleading with God to save our loved ones Oh, let all heaven rejoice over the salvation of my loved ones, over my children who are not walking with you. Oh, God, move all heaven and earth to save my loved ones, my co-workers. Shouldn't we be consistent? Shouldn't we be unending in our constant entreaties of the Lord? Lord, save him, Lord, save her, Lord, work, Lord, move amongst their intellect and grant them a sensitivity of heart. Holy Spirit, open their eyes, remove the scales from their eyes and unstop their ears. Let them hear, let them see, let them believe. The Lord Jesus is the shepherd and this is what he does with lost sheep. And I'll tell you, what's not in view here is the idea that in some way the Lord Jesus is pursuing people who have rejected himself. It's, it's about the Lord Jesus pursuing lost sheep. Now, that includes two different things. One, men and women who are not and boys and girls who are not yet believers, but who are numbered amongst God's elect, who will come, who Christ pursues and will bring to salvation. It also includes those who are in the church. And who have left the lord those who have been caught up in error those who have embraced sin and perhaps that's you this morning perhaps that's me the lord jesus is a good shepherd who pursues lost sheep john 10:14 says I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. This is not a new concept. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. I'll tell you, these passages in this passage this morning are giving us just the slightest glimpse of the heart of God. This is the heart of God here in this passage. Jesus is the one who pursues the sheep. And when he finds his lost sheep, what does he do? He doesn't say he doesn't boot them in the in the rear end and say on the way back. He doesn't beat them with a rod. He picks them up, he puts them over his shoulder and says, come. Your mighty shepherd has carried you when he conquered you and he made you his own. There will be many times in the course of your life when he will put you upon his shoulders and carry you back. Because oftentimes, dear friends, we go astray. We often don't know, we don't understand how we need to turn around, and we don't know the way back sometimes. Sometimes we are so caught up in our sins or so convicted about some sin that we have grievously committed yet again, and we just don't know how to come back, look to Jesus and say, Jesus, take me on your shoulders, but don't let me go. He rejoices over you, and He has spread His love over you. He is enthusiastic in His love for His own. God our Father has a heart full of pursuing love. For all those who are his. And this is not so much God pursuing evangelistically all those who are his elect, but rather God pursuing the errant, those in need of repentance, those who have wandered off and who have made foolish choices, who have left the care of their shepherd. And this is the regaining, the searching, the patient, the pursuing love of God. Scripture is full of this imagery. Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, surrounding context. God takes pleasure in reclaiming lost sheep. Do you hear that? Let me repeat it. God takes pleasure in reclaiming lost sheep. Now, if you make a self-assessment this morning and you realize I am a lost sheep. In many ways, I've lost my way and I, I have not pursued the Lord like I should. And in fact, in so many ways in my life, I've made errant decisions. And now I find myself so far from the Lord. I don't know how to get back. What do you do? You pray. And if you can't pray and you're struggling to pray, well, you pray about prayer. (laughs) Lord, I don't know how to pray and I don't know what to say. But I am a wandering sheep. And I long to come home to the fold. I long to walk with you. I I need you to pick me up. I need you to carry me. I feel powerless and weak and I feel empty and I know that I cannot find my way back. But Jesus, you've not lost me for I am your child and you are the great shepherd. The second passage here is concerning the lost coin. This one more quickly than we did the first. This is a drachma. It's comparable to a denarius. It's a day's wage. So 10 days of wages. Now you think about it, what do you make in the course of a day? Well, 250 bucks, 300 bucks, 500 a $1,000, who knows? But you lost one day's wages. Now many of us could bear with that loss. It would hurt. But many of us could bear with that loss. I don't know which one of our children it was, but when they were a little one, when they had money and they would accrue money, I think one of them lost like 50 bucks, And that was about all he or she had. It was one of them, and and we were were incredulous. How could you lose all your money? But it's an easy enough thing to do. Sometimes I lose money. Sometimes I lose all sorts of things. And my own beloved wife, not through any fault of her own, lost the diamond in her ring. It just simply fell out of its setting. It broke her heart. She doesn't have the diamond that she had when we first got married. Not that it was... Not that it was an extraordinary diamond, it was a rather small diamond, it was all I could afford at the time, but it was precious to us. And so it speaks really of the coins here. You see, when we lose something, it's not always just about the item itself and what its monetary value is, but about its sentimental value and what it means to us. This woman has ten silver coins. What are those? Well, it could be that those are the ten silver coins that a Jewish bride was given to put around her head. And it symbolized that she was no longer unmarried, but now she was married. And those ten coins would not be let go of. They would be held. And so they were precious. They were of far greater worth to a woman than, in fact, the one coin that, well, I had ten coins and now I've got nine. I'm a little uh, less rich, but I can make it up. Not if that coin is one of the ten that you got married with. That's very precious. And that's what's happening here. And so what does she do? She, she wants to find that coin and she, 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 she lights a lamp. You see, because in that society, you don't simply flip the switch. You don't just flip the switch and then start looking, get the kids looking. Rather, in a home like that with a dirt floor, most likely, what do you do? Well, you sweep up the dirt because a thin coin could hide under that, that dirt and dust and you may never find it. It may get buried in the dirt and dust and you may never find it. Or it could be kicked out of the house. Or perhaps someone took it. What do you do? You get a light. You get down in the ground. You begin sifting through the dirt. And you look for that thing. And so here she makes a very concerted effort. A hurried search. A fearful search. A panicked search. (gasps) I had nine coins. Those coins are precious to me. Where did the tenth go? What happened? Many of us have lost things. And maybe we were just as panicked. You know what that feels like. All of a sudden, the heart just constricts. Your stomach is filled with with the, you, you get this pit, and you realize, oh, my life is going to change from this day forward because I just lost this thing. Maybe you lost your wallet. I lost a wallet once. And all of a sudden, you get this pit in your stomach. You think somebody's going to pick it up and take the money. But worse than that, they're going to use my credit cards, They're going to use and steal my identity. And in this day and age today, it's even worse. People are quite gifted at stealing identities. All of us have been subject to, steal, to the theft of our identities at some point. We've gotten little envelopes in the mail from some individual, from some company, whether Home Depot or Lowe's or TJ Maxx and all those other companies or Apple your private information has been violated (laughs) and may be used. Well, here's this woman. She's lost a coin. It's very precious to her. And she's carefully searching, frantically searching, and she finds it. And when she finds it, what does she do? She does like the the farmer with the 99. She calls all her friends and she calls up and she says, Lisa, come over. Uh, Christine, I can't believe this. John, you won't believe where I found this. And she tells everyone, come and rejoice with me. I found what is so precious. She tells and she retells the story. She's probably sick and tired of retelling it. But she tells about the circumstances of it being lost. She says, this is how I found it. You won't believe it. Well, what do we make of this passage in conclusion, dear friends? The emphasis in this passage in both parables is that God is concerned with the finding of lost sinners. And yes, that all heaven rejoices when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I think you need to rejoice in that fact this morning, that when you turned your life over to Christ, all heaven rejoiced. When you stood before the congregation, you gave an affirmation of your faith all heaven rejoiced. When you said, I believe in Jesus Christ, my Savior, I am a sinner. When you, when you bent your knee in that first moment and you, you prayed to God and you asked Him, Lord, forgive me of my sin, not only did He hear you, but all heaven rejoiced. And God said, come, look. Look at this extraordinary situation. Give all glory and praise and honor and, and glory to the Son in the highest heaven because a sinner has come to faith in Him. And He is covered with the righteousness of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world, whose blood has been spilled. God is concerned with the welfare of the weak and the insignificant, and He is concerned for your soul. He is concerned for you. And so when you abandon Him, and in your feelings you feel like you cannot approach God, and you're ashamed, or you're frankly just overwhelmed, God is concerned to embrace you, to put him on His shoulders, and to carry you back. He loves you. He extraordinarily loves you. His love knows no measure. It is as far as the east is from the west, it is as high as the heavens down to the depths in the center of the earth. It is unfathomable, it is unsearchable, it is beyond description. It is beyond recognition. It is extraordinarily beyond the ability to describe it. His love knows no bounds for you. God loves you extraordinarily if you are His child and if you have believed in His Son. Jesus is a friend of sinners and our God who loves sinners will go to great lengths to redeem them. Some of us have only been religious and we have not made Jesus our soul's trust. Some of us have committed our lives to Christ. We are trusting in Him, but we are we're holding back. There's a little piece of us that tells us, I'm not going to be happy if I give myself wholeheartedly heart, soul, mind and strength completely. I just can't do it. We hide our sins. And privately, we secretly embrace the world and our own appetites. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex and sexual fornication. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's living a double life. Maybe it's filthy language, wanting to be a friend of the world. Jesus is pursuing you, dear friend. And He is relentless. He will not let go his desire is to rejoice over you and to call all heaven to come and to rejoice over your return and your surrender to him. All of us, all of us need to recognize the extraordinary love of God and to rejoice in the love of the Savior who is unwilling to let one coin be lost, one sheep be left out of the fold, one sinner, one sinner miss out on the love of God in Jesus Christ. He is unwilling that any of you should be lost, Peter says. Turn and cling to Jesus Christ. And take great comfort in the fact that if you are a sheep and a child of God, you can never, never be taken out of his hand. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks to you for your word and we ask that you would enable us to confidently trust in our Savior, to embrace this reality that Christ is our great shepherd, that he is the great shepherd who watches over the sheep, whose sheep hear his voice, and who says confidently to the Father, I have not lost one. I will never lose one. I have more not yet of the fold, but who will. Will be. Oh, great shepherd, we look unto you and we are filled with joy that you have rejoiced with all of heaven over our salvation. Who are we that you should be mindful of us? All that we can do is give ourselves back in praise. We glorify our Savior this morning in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.